Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the chance every week to enjoy the fellowship of the saints in this building. But, Father, this place is a training opportunity. Father, this is not the sum of what you are doing in the body. We know that. This is the means to a greater end. And I thank you, Father, that you would keep us mindful as we spend our time here every Sunday of what it is we are here for. We come, Father, to praise you, to worship you. But in our gathering, we come to prepare ourselves to serve you. And thank you, Father, for the chance to serve you in so many ways. Let our hearts be directed outward. Let our thoughts be directed toward the needs of those who have not known you and do not call you Lord. Let our time in study this morning in your word prepare us to carry the message of the gospel to others and give it the power to create courage in our hearts and urgency so that we may act on what we learn. Let us be those who would not only be hearers but also doers of this word that you've given us this morning. And as we study a man, Joseph, and the brothers of Israel, that we would learn from their mistakes as well as from their successes how we may follow you with greater obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 42. Joseph, in our story, is on a mission to bring reconciliation with his brothers. We studied last week that this is now his aim. He has become focused on making this happen. We saw Joseph meeting his brothers for the first time in probably 20 years. They bowed down before him, coming to buy the grain that they so desperately needed. And as they came into his presence, Joseph immediately recognized them. And he immediately recognized what he had to do now that he saw them. He knew he was to rule over his family, according to the dreams that he had received. But as we studied last week... Joseph was determined to rule over these brothers in his family, not as a despot, not as a lord commanding their obedience, but as a fellow brother who was deserving of their love and their devotion. He wants that type of relationship. Now, under normal circumstances, it would have been difficult for one of these brothers among the twelve to receive love and devotion from his siblings. And I say that as one of three brothers in my family. There's a natural sense of competition and, and rivalry there. There's often tension in a family like that, at least there was in mine. So how much more difficult do you think it would be for Joseph to manage this outcome, to engender love and devotion from among his brothers, given their history together? It's an almost impossible task. But as these brothers go, so goes Israel. And so if this nation that God has formed in Abraham's family is going to survive as a single unit throughout the corridors of history, then Joseph has to succeed at this reconciliation. I mean, this is the start. Each of these brothers is a tribe. If this family unit does not hold together, what does that have to say about the future of Israel, the nation? But holding brothers together can be difficult. There's a story of two brothers who I think reflect the importance of brothers working together. It's the story of two brothers who wanted to enlist in the army. And at the time that they wanted to enlist, the army was experiencing a difficult time of recruitment. The numbers were down and the service was struggling to meet its quotas. And the chief of staff of the army decided that he was going to intervene to forestall this crisis in enlistment. And he directed that at a nearby base, they would encourage all eligible young men and women in the local area to be invited into a big single event one day in which they would recruit as many as they could possibly bring in. 
And he and his staff set up a great array of military weaponry, M1 tanks and, and other displays to try to encourage the local teens to come and enlist. And as they were doing this on that day, two strong, strapping young men came in, brothers as it turns out. And these brothers stepped in like right off of a recruiting poster, seeking to sign up for the army. Now, the chief of staff on that day happened to be attending to lead the festivities. He walks up to these two men, strikes up a conversation, and he starts with the first brother saying, son, what skills do you bring to the army today? And that young man said, well, I'm a pilot. And the general got extremely excited at the prospect of bringing in such a qualified recruit. And he said to his corpsman who was there aiding him, he said, I want you to get this done today. Get the paperwork signed. Do everything to bring this man in right away. So the aide hustles the first brother off. Now the general turns to the second young man, optimistic that this young man would bring a lot of talent as well. And he turns to him and says, what skills are you bringing today to this man's army? And the young man said, well, I chop wood, sir. And the general thought, well, son, we don't have much need for wood choppers in the army. What else can you do? And the man said, well, I just chop wood with my brother. And the general said, you're not listening to me, young man. We don't need wood choppers. This is the 21st century army. We need men who have minds to go with their bodies, men who can meet the call of duty. Your brother is going to come in and be a pilot. And the second young man rolls his eyes and says, well, I have to chop it before he can pilot. (laughs) Young men working together. That's the key. Brothers working together. And if anyone doesn't understand it, Dave will explain it to you after the service. So Joseph has accused his brothers of being spies last week, you remember, and he put them in prison for three days. Now, Joseph has done this, we understand, to bring pressure, to bring stress on his brothers. And then also, I would argue, to give himself a little time to consider his options for how best to proceed. Building this pressure on his brothers is an important part of Joseph's plan. And we covered this last week by trial and tribulation. The brothers are going to have this added incentive, this added reason to consider their past mistakes and hopefully repent of them. But we also noted last week that this story of Joseph and his brothers and of Joseph putting his brothers under pressure so that they can reconcile in the end is a story that teaches a beautiful picture of another time to come, a time in which Israel, the nation, will be put under stress and trial in this world in a time of tribulation so that they might be reconciled to Christ, whom Joseph is picturing in this story. And in that future time, when you see this reconciliation take place, it comes as a matter of great stress and trial, which is explicitly intended, Scripture tells us, to create suffering in Israel for the purpose, ultimately, that Israel would repent of their sins concerning Christ, and by that repentance be reconciled. So as we continue now, looking forward in this story, we're going to continue to look for those parallels, the parallels between the story of Joseph and his brothers with the coming story of Israel reconciled to Christ in the last days. Genesis 42:18 is where we start again this morning. Now, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men. Let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words may be verified and you will not die. 
And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered, saying, Didn't I tell you? Do not sin against the boy. You would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he, said, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So Joseph devises this plan to bring all the brothers together. Benjamin, if you remember, is still at home. So that's the young brother that did not travel down into Egypt with the rest. We learned last week that that happened because Jacob was so concerned that his favored son would be in jeopardy if he traveled. So he was protecting Benjamin. And we also learned last week that Joseph has been concealing his identity because he can't reveal himself to them prematurely. Before Joseph can show his brothers who he truly is, he wants all of his brothers present, including this one, Benjamin. Consider what would happen, for example, if Joseph had revealed himself to just these 11 before the last one was present. Well, then he could never have known the heart of the last boy, not truly. The problem is you can't know what they truly think about you when they find out who you really are as Lord over Egypt. So he's waiting to get all present before he reveals himself. So here's his plan. His plan is to bring Benjamin in as a test of their claims to be of a family of 12 brothers, one who they said has died. Now, previously, Joseph had told them, I'm going to hold all of you guys and just send one of you back. But in the three days they've been sitting in the prison, Joseph has changed his mind. He now has a different plan. Now the plan is he sends all of them back except for one and leaves only one in prison. Now, why did Joseph change his plan in that way? Well, we get the answer in verse 20. First, by sending multiple brothers back instead of just the one, as he originally planned, the story they tell Jacob now can be verified by the voices of multiple brothers. It won't be one guy showing up to Jacob saying, I got this crazy story for you, Dad. I need to take Benjamin back to get the rest of the brothers free. They're in jail in Egypt. This is what's happened. Instead, it's multiple brothers saying, Dad, this is what's really happened. We need to take one brother. Secondly, Joseph knows that these brothers have a history of coming back to their father with bad news in the form of a lie. And Joseph wants Jacob to believe the story this time and allow Benjamin to leave. Lastly, Joseph says, this will ensure that you do not die. Now, why is this plan more likely to save the brothers from death? Well, sending a single brother alone to travel desert roads between Egypt and Canaan and then back again with just Benjamin would have been a very dangerous trip. They could have easily fallen prey to robbers along the road. They would have very easily failed to make it back safely, especially in a time in which there was famine and people had need. Imagine sending one brother back with a whole load of grain in a time of famine. Might as well put a big bullseye on him and just say, come and get it. So this is all part of Joseph trying to be gracious while getting what he wants accomplished. Now, after they hear of Joseph's command, the brothers immediately begin to lament to one another over their predicament. And this is obviously something we can understand and appreciate. They associate their current situation with the one that they had previously put their brother Joseph through. They link them. They conclude that this is now payback for their earlier misdeeds. Reuben takes the opportunity to remind them that 
I didn't agree with that. Not my plan. I told you so. I didn't want to sell them. You put me in the same situation too. He reminds them that he was the one who had tried to save Joseph in the first place. He didn't participate in the actual act, but Reuben forgets he did participate in the cover-up. Now Joseph is listening, we're told, to this whole conversation. you got Joseph here who knows Hebrew, but he's always talked to them through an Egyptian interpreter, so they don't know that he can know Hebrew. And so he's hearing them. They don't think that he's understanding them. This reminds me of situations... Have you ever been in an elevator and two people start talking to each other in a language you don't know? What do you think is always happening when that happens? I don't know about you, but I always think they're talking about me. Is it just my insecurity that drives that? Yeah, pretty much. That's what I always think about when I see this story of Joseph. He's sitting there watching and listening to the whole thing and they don't know it. And of course, it moves him to tears. He turns, it says, to weep. This will be one of several times this happens to Joseph. You have to imagine he's feeling the pain of his brothers, but I also think he's reliving the situation he went through. And he's feeling the sorrow of that time as well. Now, the boys, they're lamenting, yes, but what kind of sorrow are they experiencing right now? I would argue this is worldly sorrow. The Bible speaks in 2 Corinthians of the difference between worldly sorrow and true repentance. Everyone in the world, whether believer or unbeliever, has experienced worldly sorrow. We all know what that's like. When we get caught doing the wrong thing, or when the consequences of what we do come back upon us in a way that we don't prefer, we feel badly. We feel bad we're caught. We feel bad that we've had to deal with something that has transpired because of our mistakes. We, we don't like that, and we're sorrowful. The Bible acknowledges that's true. But the Bible makes a distinction between that kind of feeling and repentance. Repentance starts as worldly sorrow, but it doesn't stop there. It moves past the feeling of sorrow to a spiritual impact in which we recognize that that sorrow is a message from God and we need to respond. And in the response, repentance takes place. Do these boys respond in any way that exhibits repentance? Not really. They're sorry that they're now in this situation. And they connect it in some sense to what has happened in the past. But that's where it ends. Among those in the unbelieving world, there's a word often used to describe this viewpoint. The one that the boys are expressing here. The one of payback. You've heard it, I'm sure. Karma. Karma is a popular word. Its origin is Buddhism and other Eastern pagan religions, Hinduism as well. The concept has many variants. It includes, in some cases, reincarnation. But the basic concept is very simple. Karma says that the choice a person makes will come back upon him in some similar way in the future. So karma would teach that if a person does good things, then good things will be returned to that person at some point. Or conversely, if they do bad things in life, then they'll see bad things returned to them in the future. Believers in karma may or may not recognize the involvement of a deity. There are versions of karma where they think it's not God or any form of deity involved. It's just a universal truth of the cosmos. There are other views that assign it to deities. Now, obviously, the teaching of karma is a man-made concept. It lacks spiritual truth. It is not biblical. But there is a biblical parallel 
to this teaching. I'm not saying karma is taught in the Bible. I'm saying that the principle of karma is found in a different way in Scripture. First, the Bible teaches that sin has consequences, which is similar in a way to the notion of karma. If we live a life of sin, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, then you can expect to see consequences sooner or later. If you rob banks long enough, you go to jail. If you are a nasty person at every turn to everyone, sooner or later, people will be nasty to you. That's a reasonable principle that you see reflected in life and in Scripture. But furthermore, if you are a believer, a child of God by faith in Christ, Scripture goes a step further and says that if we as believers live a life of sin, we are actively disobeying the Father of lights, And as a result, he must, by his perfect nature, respond to that through discipline. That a believer has, in addition to the natural consequences of sin, they also have the additional consequences of God bringing discipline into their life. We do not want to be subject to the discipline of a holy and just God. But because he loves us, we are when we sin. Secondly, God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, a covenant that provided for a cause and effect outcome for the people of Israel. God said if the nation obeyed his commandments and kept them all, then as a nation they would receive blessing. But if they failed to keep his covenant, they would receive his wrath. There is a cause and effect relationship then for the nation of Israel, not because of karma, not because of some cosmic principle, but because of a covenant in which they agreed and God stipulated, here's what would happen if you obey and here's what would happen if you disobey. So similar to the concept of karma, these things exist. But what are the differences? What are the brothers forgetting? Well, the key difference between karma and the Bible's teaching is the involvement of the creator God in the process. Karma and other New Age notions attribute this cause and effect relationship to some ambiguous, impersonal, cosmic power. Not a personal God, but the Bible says the Lord is always in control of all outcomes. Not because of some roll of the dice, but because of his sovereign will and purpose. And those outcomes lead the world to an appointed end, one that he has assigned, and it will hold all guilty accountable. And yet the Lord has made a way of escape for those who accept the provision made available in his son Christ. So one difference between karma and the Bible is karma talks about an impersonal power, as I said. The Bible talks about a personal God who is actively working to hold guilty accountable, yet make mercy available in his son. There is a second difference, though, in karma and the Bible. Karma makes no allowance for grace. Karma makes no allowance for mercy. When you do bad things, bad things will happen. Folks, I've done terrible things. And I have to imagine we've all done and continue to do at times bad things. If we lived according to the principle of karma, what would our future hold? What could it hold except bad things? But because of faith in Christ, we live according to the principle of grace which does not give license for sin. It certainly doesn't give us any joy in sin. What it does do, though, is remind us that all the bad we've done was already accounted for by the work of Christ on the cross. 
And what is good and what is promised for us in the future is not on the basis of something good we did to earn it. It's based entirely on the good Christ did on the cross. I would much rather live under grace than karma. And I'm so thankful that karma is false. But grace through Christ is truth. Karma believers never stop to ask the obvious question. How do these cosmic forces arrive at their rule of what is right and what is wrong? If it's rewarding right and punishing wrong, how did it decide what was right and what was wrong? Where do those definitions come from? If there's no lawgiver and there's no judgment, then what dictates the consequences? There's no answer to that from karma's point of view. Only the Bible answers that question. It says that the holiness of God and the perfection of his law define good. And any departure from that is by definition bad. That's why Jesus said in Luke 18:19 to the man who called him good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Goodness, according to God, is not a continuum in which you start at one end with pure evil and you end up at the other end with pure goodness and everyone else falls somewhere in between. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says good is a point, not a continuum. You are either good or you are not. And good is defined as the perfection of God himself. Guess what? By that standard, I am not good. Not even close. Praise the Lord, Jesus was good for me. Joseph's brothers press forward with the plan, we're told. First, Joseph puts Simeon, it says, in chains in front of them. To make the point that he is dead serious about this, Simeon will not be released until Benjamin is brought back. It's interesting that Joseph skipped over Reuben. Why would he skip over Reuben? Well, in the natural course of things, Reuben being the oldest, it would have made sense for Reuben to be the one put in prison and the rest of them sent back. That might have been the more natural thing to do. But he allows Reuben to go back as the oldest in the hope that he can convince Jacob to let Benjamin go. So here's the test the brothers have in front of them. And it's a beautiful test. Do they love Simeon more than they love themselves? Will they voluntarily return to Egypt with Benjamin just to rescue Simeon? They can weep all they want over their past mistakes with Joseph. But the real test of repentance will be whether they are willing to do a different thing this time than they did the last time. And as they depart, Joseph decides to increase the pressure on them even more. There's something about Joseph's heart I really love. In the sense that he is truly willing to uncover what's in these boys' hearts. He's not going to look past any opportunity to see it otherwise. He wants to know the clear, hard facts. So he ramps the pressure up. Look at verse 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? That question is better than karma. They're moving steadily in the right direction, but they're not there yet. So Joseph, without their brothers knowing, gives all their money back, puts it back in their sacks. Now, they brought the money to pay for the grain, to buy the grain. 
So they certainly didn't expect to find the money again after they had bought the grain and it was sitting on their donkeys. So as they open it up, their conclusion is what? Clearly, they're worried now that the Pharaoh will think they somehow managed to steal their money back. Why did Joseph do this? Well, Joseph was giving the brothers additional reason never to return. He was adding to the reasons not to come back. And it wasn't merely a matter of the money itself. I mean, it's not just Joseph being nice to his brothers and giving them some of their money back because he wants to be a good brother to them. No, no, no. The implication is you've stolen the grain and they know that. Notice in verse 28, when the brothers discover their money returned, it says their hearts sank. They didn't get excited about the prospect of free grain. They were desperately bothered by that concept. They were heart sunk at the prospect. The point is they realize now that if and when they return to Egypt with Benjamin, there is a very good chance they will be accused of having stolen in the first case and killed for that offense. Now, the question has become, are they willing to risk their own lives to save Simeon? And Joseph just increased the pressure on them a hundredfold. Folks, this is exactly the same pattern you're going to see during the waning days of tribulation. When we go to studying a little later in the events of Joseph here, as we get closer to studying the way God will bring pressure on Israel, you're going to see this very same pattern. The entire time of tribulation is a pressure cooker for Israel and the earth. It's designed to bring repentance and acceptance within the nation of Israel for Messiah. But Daniel teaches that the last days of tribulation are merely the final part of a very long period of judgment reserved for Israel under the Old Covenant. Daniel 9.24 says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So in Daniel 9.24, we're told there are 70 weeks, or in the Hebrew, that's 77s, which means 490 years, that have been set aside in God's plan, during which time God is going to accomplish six things in the nation of Israel. He is going to finish the transgression, that is, to put an end to their sin under the Old Covenant, to bring them into conformance with the Old Covenant. Number two, he's going to put an end to sin in Israel. Well, you can't get number one unless you do number two. There can be no more sin in Israel. Number three, he's going to make atonement for their sin under the old covenant. Number four, he's going to bring in a period of everlasting righteousness. Well, you get an everlasting righteousness when you have no sin. And he's going to bring an end to vision and prophecy, which means they will know all things. And then lastly, he will anoint a new temple. All of these events are accomplished through the chastisement of Israel at the end of tribulation. And they are all associated with the arrival of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth in his kingdom. What Daniel says is, I'm going to bring this 490-year period of judgment against Israel so that at the conclusion of it, I can bring them into the fullness of the promises I have made to them, both in the covenant to Abraham and in the covenant I gave through Moses. Zechariah describes this coming period of trial in two short verses out of Zechariah 13, 13, 8 and 9. He says, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring that third part, speaking of Israel, through the fire, 
Refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Israel will feel the heat of the Lord refining his people during the time of tribulation. Two thirds of the Jewish people on earth will not survive this period of trial, he says. But one third will survive and that remnant will call upon the name of Jesus leading to their salvation on the last day. We're going to study more of this in the coming weeks and see it in much greater detail out of Scripture. But for now, you should see this picture playing out in the way Joseph is turning up the pressure on his brothers, bringing them closer and closer to that moment when he can reveal himself to them. In the last few minutes for the morning, let's just cover the rest of the chapter as the brothers meet Jacob and explain to him what has transpired. Verse 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So the sons reach Jacob in Canaan, and they tell him all that's happened. They tell him of how they met the Lord of the land, this powerful man had claimed that they were spies, how they defended themselves by explaining, no, we're 12 brothers, one of them's dead, one of them is still at home, and so on. And then they explain that, well, because of that story, Pharaoh has now decided to take one of the sons captive and demands that we bring back Benjamin to prove our story. And then it was Jacob's turn. He says, first, you have bereaved me of first Joseph, now Simeon, and you would have me lose Benjamin as well. Now, that is a fascinating thing for Jacob to say. And it's even more interesting when you realize that in Hebrew, it's a question. It's asked in a form that suggests Jacob suspects something here. He suspects that maybe these sons are responsible for Jacob's sons dying off one at a time. Now, I want you to think about this. Why would Jacob come to this suspicion? Well, consider that now twice the brothers have gone on long trips and come back minus one brother, but with extra money. They go to Dothan, come back without Joseph, but they have 20 pieces of silver. But he died. They go to Egypt, they come back with the grain and the money, and they're missing Simeon. Oh, but he's in jail. By the way, we'd like to take Benjamin with us. <laughs> Sounds like a small business they're operating here. And Jacob is suspicious, so Jacob says, you know what? I'm done. You're not taking any more sons. That's it. I don't trust you anyway. And then Reuben, with his bright idea, says, tell you what, Dad, you can kill your two grandkids, if you'd like, as proof. 
And Jacob's like, oh, that helps. Brilliant, Reuben, brilliant. It's a foolish thing for Reuben to say. It's not going to help Jacob. It certainly doesn't make Jacob more likely to trust Reuben. You're willing to kill your own two sons in this deal? And I'm entrusting my son to you? Now, Reuben's point was to emphasize how seriously he would be willing to take the responsibility. We get that. But it doesn't solve the problem that Jacob has, which is a lack of trust that these sons will do the right thing. So predictably, he refuses the offer. But what's interesting about Jacob's response is he leaves Simeon for dead. He said it. First Joseph, now Simeon. I mean, he's written the guy off already. His favoritism for Rachel's sons is so strong, he's willing to forsake one of his other sons, essentially, to save Benjamin. But the famine is not over, and the pressure is only going to increase on Israel. Just as we said the Lord is going to increase the pressure of tribulation until the stubborn and stiff-necked Jewish people, as Scripture describes them, are left with no alternative but death or seek Christ. Likewise, it will be for Jacob, death or send Benjamin. And we're going to see next week what he does. Let's go to prayer. Father, I pray a prayer of thanks that for each of us, you did not bring us to the point of death before we must accept Christ. You graciously brought the gift of faith to us in an earlier day when when we were not faced with such calamity. But Father, we pray for those we know in our families or among our friends who have yet to come to faith. We pray, Father, that if death be the only alternative you give, then so be it, Father. For how much better is it that they would come to faith under those circumstances than not at all? We thank you that you've shown us in the story of Joseph your power to reach and your determination to pursue and your sovereign will to get what you desire. And yet, in watching how you do it, Father, it is helpful to us to see that you bring us faith through some of the worst circumstances we might face, that you can take so many things in life which we would say are terrible things and turn them to such good. But we know that that method has been a forced requirement because of the sin and the hardness of hearts. And so we don't hold you accountable for the the sin that you deal with, we rather, Father, recognize that you work with what you have, which is a world full of sin, and we thank you for that work. Continue to open our eyes, Father, to the truth of Joseph and his sons and of the way they picture the future. Let our hearts be directed toward that future and to have a concern and an urgency according to what will be coming, and let it drive us to open our mouths and speak truth to others. And in this week to come, as we prepare to celebrate Easter, I pray you would give us an opportunity. Someone somewhere in this week will need to know that they are welcome and we will offer that opportunity. And I ask, Father, you would give us courage to do that and give them a heart to respond. Encourage us by their response. And thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church, Father, and for the blessing it is to be here every Sunday. We would ask that blessing be extended again next week and in the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.